The following podcast contains occasional bursts of adult language. I can't think of any novel or any piece of art that seemed like a good idea in the first draft of it. You're legitimate even if you don't publish. You know, Emily Dickinson was a legitimate poet. Van Gogh was a legitimate artist. That's sort of what literature is. It's a weird group of awkward people who don't care about football. You want your work to be read? Then write the best damn book possible. Live from Studio B in Dubai, this is the Brevity Podcast. I'm your host, Allison K. Williams, and this is our long-awaited one-minute memoir episode. After battling illness, technical issues, and all kinds of craziness, we are finally ready to share with you the work of these amazing writers. Chosen from over 300 submissions, we think you'll find these one-minute memoirs beautiful, moving, funny, and just plain amazing. So I'm Allison K. Williams, and I am the podcast host for the Brevity Podcast, and I am here with... Catherine Rose. Who is our audio editor and whose voice has never before been heard on the podcast. Um, But Catherine and I were going through all of the submissions for the One Minute Memoirs that you are about to hear, and we wanted to give you guys just a little bit of a window into the submission process. Like... Why did we pick stuff? We got 344 submissions, which even at 150 words a piece is a lot to read. Um, But there were so many good ones in there. And we'll get to those in a minute so that we can kind of leave the end of this discussion on a positive note. But let's talk a little bit about why did we say no to some of the ones we said no to. And don't worry, we're not going to bash anybody specifically. We're going to talk in some generalities that are hopefully still specific enough to give you some ideas for your own writing. One thing I think we should talk about is, like, what is a memoir? Some of them were, this is a poem. Yeah. And and there's definitely a place for prose poetry. Like, there, I, I think some prose poems are amazing, and some of the prose poems we got were amazing. But they did not function as a memoir because it was so much about the beauty of the language, and we weren't getting the impact on the narrator. And I can think, actually, we had at least two pieces that I thought were incredibly written and really amazing stories, but they were about somebody else and we didn't understand what the connection to the narrator was or where the resonance was for the narrator. Like, And that can be, what does the narrator feel who is writing this right now? Or what did the narrator feel at the time that they saw this situation or knew this person or whatever? We've got to know how it hits the narrator. Yeah. This is a thing that happened, and I can describe it beautifully, but how did it affect me, or how would my experience of it affect you? And I think that goes for some of the ones we got. Uh, We got some really good, funny pieces, but some of the pieces that were funny were so clever and funny, but then they felt like an anecdote instead of having a larger emotional resonance. And that doesn't have to be a sad resonance. It can be like, oh, hey, and you know, that's... Uh, that's why I've always been a joyful person, but written much better than that. What else did we see that oh. was problematic? So not a memoir or no emotional connection to the narrator. And I have to say, too, there were also some pieces that did describe something that had happened to the person, but still didn't have that larger emotional connection. True. 
And I think there's an art in capturing that. I think it's hard as a writer, it is for me, to get to the tough place. You have to push into the really uncomfortable place. Mm -hmm. It's like when you talk about writing and there are tears running down your face because what you're writing is so, is affecting you so strongly while you're writing it. But you could write about the same thing and not get anywhere near there. And we read a lot of pieces, like when we were getting to our final round yesterday, like really separating out, out of all the stuff that's really amazing. And, and there was quite a bit of it. We can only put a certain number of them in this episode, you know, so we read a lot of them out loud to each other to kind of hear them in the same voice so that we're not being swayed by the narrator's voice. And one of the things we noticed as we were reading is that, like, it makes me cry to read them out loud, mm -hmm. you know, so that and I think that's where it really succeeds is when it's incredibly moving to someone who is not the writer. And. I feel the need to say that as we're recording this, we really still don't know the final selections. Yeah, we have, we have sent our final selections to the great brevity editor, Dinty W. Moore, and Dinty is going to narrow it down because we definitely got to a point where we just could not choose any further. And we're waiting to see if he cuts our favorites. <laughs> We, we ended up, so with the last few, and we probably had, I don't know, 30% more pieces than we could send to Dinty at that point. And we ended up doing like kickball in elementary school where we each picked our own imaginary team and took turns picking to see like, okay, what am I willing to use up one of my precious team slots on? It was very hard. It was very hard. But it worked really well because in the end, I ended up picking one that I hadn't originally been really in favor of, but you'd been really in favor of it. And I was like, you know what? I like this piece a lot because now that I'm comparing it against these other pieces, I like it more than I like that. And I, I like the message. Yeah. And I wish we had recorded it then, but we had really good conversations about why do I like this piece and why does it resonate with me? And, and we, we swayed each other a lot. We did. And it was it was nice to have this discussion in person because I know most of the time when Brevity is choosing pieces for the main magazine, the editors are not even all in the same state. You know, they're doing almost everything online. There is some discussion back and forth in the notes and submittable, but we don't really get to talk to each other. And you and I got to like argue about pieces. And I think even there's one that fingers crossed makes it into the episode that made you really deeply uncomfortable because it kind of yeah. touched you where you live. Yes. And that goes back to writing from the hard place. Sometimes reading from the hard place isn't always comfortable, but it's probably a sign of good writing that it upsets me so much to read it that I do not want to read it. You gave it a two. I gave it a 10. I think yes. I even gave it a 10 plus. I loved it so much. Yes. And the funny part is, so like not to tell tales at a school, but we both grew up with alcoholic fathers. Right. And both of us had very different experiences despite both having alcoholic fathers. And so for me, this piece, which touched on a relative's alcoholism, it's spoke to me in a way that I was like, oh, yeah, I can see why this person would feel that way. But it wasn't very similar to the experience I had. So it touched me as a reader, but it didn't reach into my soul and like shake me and go, this is your life. I've handed a lot of cold beers to my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and now if it made the cut, everybody's going to know which one we're talking about. So what I'm, I started keeping a little tick mark chart in my journal of like, 
what did we get? Both what subject matter did they cover and why did we choose to reject some of them? We ended up with two breast cancer, two brain cancer, and two cancer other. Um, five divorces and another seven cheating or adultery. 20 death of child slash parent slash spouse. Like eight or nine, I didn't fit in thens. Another eight or nine, I don't fit in nows. We ended up with a substantial number on family history, but that was really cool because all of them were different kinds of family history. Um, and we ended up with 11 that were actually poems. So when we move on to like, why did we let it go? I have 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. I have 34 ticked as not a memoir, no emotional connection to the narrator. And I have another five ticked as no context. We either don't know where this is happening or we don't know when this is happening or we don't know why this is happening. And I also have another 20 ticked as last line summary. Oh, gosh. And I think that's one of the biggest things and the most easily fixable things for memoirists to watch out for. One of the things you really want to avoid is summarizing your piece in the last line. So why doesn't it work? Well, you drop us into a place. It's a, it's a mini memoir. So you're dropping us into a place for a very brief period of time and you're giving us an emotional experience. And then, EBD, EBD, that's all, folks. Yeah, it's like a lot of times a last line summary, it either feels glib, like it feels like it's the, it feels like it's a punchline, but it's the opposite of a punchline because it's sad or mm -hmm. it's summing up a, a bad experience. The other thing is I feel like it's not trusting me as the reader to get it. Like a last line summary kind of feels like, get it, get it. Did you get what I was talking about? And I mean, this is not from anybody's obviously, but it's like, uh, and that was the day my cookie crumbled. And maybe it's what we do to protect ourselves. You know, I went into this emotional place. Oh, let me cover this up now. I'm done. Let me define the emotional place and make sure that it is defined within these narrow limits. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of times by cutting that last line, instead you get to let the reader sit with the piece right. and let the reader feel what it means to them. Yeah, absolutely. Another problem we ran into was pieces that took too long to get started, oh, like gosh. even in 100 to 150 words. And some of our pieces were as short as 40 or 50 words. And, and some of those were very, very good. You, you have no liftoff. Like back at Hippocamp, Brevity Editors, Alexis Page and Penny Guisinger taught a really great workshop on flash fiction. And one of the things Penny said was, you have a very short runway in a piece of flash fiction. Your airline needs to take off really fast. And I would say at this length, at the one minute length, you need to be in a helicopter. You need to instantly achieve liftoff, drop us right into the moment. There is no prep time. So some of the stuff we saw was people told us like what year it was or how old they were. And a lot of times these weren't needed because it was already clear from later in the piece or it was just not relevant. Or something about the town or the, or the house or the peop, other people involved. And, and really, you can just drop in. Get to the point. Just drop in. Absolutely get to the point. But I think it's like we want to set up a story for someone. We want to set up the situation. So last week... Me and my friend were right. walking down the street on the way to Walmart. And it's like, no, start with the guy chucking the can of beer out the window at you. Start there. Make the reader the detective. All books are mysteries. You know, so either the mystery is who killed that person or the mystery is who am I? Why am I here? 
How did I get here? Am I going to survive this experience? Which brings me to another thing that we ran into that was not always good. It's that sometimes people were too oblique. Oh, yeah. They were yeah. like, guess what this is about? This is about this mysterious thing that I'm not going to exactly specifically talk about. And we didn't really connect with what was happening because we didn't really understand what was happening. Yeah. Beautiful language, gorgeous sentence structure, right. rhythm, 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 alliteration, alliteration. And the, but, but what's it about? It, that's, that's all inside. And, and I think that's really challenging because as writers, we don't want to be too obvious. Right. We don't want to do that last line summary. We don't want to treat the reader like they're dumb. But we also sometimes have to be a little bit more obvious than we think because we know the backstory and the context and the reader does not. And there's great art that is completely abstract. And that's the equivalent of the writing. But mm -hmm. I don't know that that's memoir, what we were looking for. Yeah. Because we don't know, we don't connect to the, the event or the person mm -hmm. clearly. And so the pieces that made the cut, the pieces that made our cut and that have been sent off to Dinty for his final adjudication are the pieces that immediately took us into a specific moment. There were concrete, specific visual images. There was a sense of the larger emotional resonance for the narrator, and we knew what was happening. Yes. Even if we had to guess a little, we knew. And we felt it. Yeah. And there were a couple where you read one aloud to me and I was like, oh crap, I totally didn't get that until I heard it in your voice. And I think we had one in the other direction too, where you were yeah. like, oh, I didn't understand what was happening there. Right. You changed my mind a lot about one that I was not a fan of. And that was, and it was so funny because that was a piece where at the very beginning, when we first went through them all online, apart from each other, I was like, oh my God, yes. So much. Yes. This is a yes. And you were like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's that process like? What changed for you? I honestly didn't get the first line the, when I read it. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the first line until you read it. Yeah. So that set the whole thing in a different perspective for me. Mm -hmm. But I think, too, it was just a conversation that we had about the impact to the, the impact to the narrator conversation mm -hmm. changed my opinion on a lot of them. Because there were some that I really loved the language. Mm -hmm. There was one I was so sad to strike off the list yesterday. Mm -hmm. Because beautiful, beautiful language. Gorgeous language. But no impact to the narrator. Yeah. We don't... And when there's no impact on the narrator, there's no impact on the reader. We're appreciating their beautiful craftsmanship. Beautiful. But it's not actually taking us to another place. As I was editing the... Uh, submissions episode, people kept saying the same thing over again. If you're going to write about a death of a parent, you better really write it. Yeah. If you're going to write about having cancer, you better really be good because they're not kidding. We had a <laughs> lot of, a lot of submissions that all covered the same topics and it's just really hard to be the best of that pile. Yeah. And I mean, you can never really prevent duplicating entirely um, I mean, we had two pieces from the perspective of a fetus. You know, how does that happen? We had two pieces that were specifically about people's hands, you know, and maybe the story you have to tell is the story of your alcoholic dad's death from brain cancer. 
But in that case, the bar for your writing craft level is higher. It has to be unique. And I think that there's a bigger burden there to go to the hard place. And I'm thinking too, like of the stuff that were our final pieces, there is a piece about the death of a parent, but the door in was a very specific banal activity. And it was an incredible, beautiful piece, but the door in was not, oh, I'm so sad because my, my person died. The door in was, here is this tiny technical moment about where you sit that happens when you are mourning and when you are first hit with an unexpected death. It's a really powerful piece. And I think we both teared up every time we read it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a number of pieces that I would say fit into the, the hashtag me too category. And I love that more women are sharing those stories and that more women are getting those stories out there. But just like cancer, know that that is now a theme that is that is popular. And so when you're going to tell that story, tell it from your specific door in, from the way that it, it specifically happened to you. I think we ended up with two pieces along those lines in our, in our final set. Um, and I think one of them was unique because it was about looking at younger women in a completely different culture and wishing like metaphorical armor for them. And one of them was kind of about how you turn personal tragedy into art and write about it. Oh, yes. Sorry, I was placing it for a second. Yes, that's a really powerful one. There's also, and I hope it makes it, another really great example of, I want to say, economy of words Mm-hmm. word usage that the words are so well used that there's a lot of information that's communicated in like one or two sentences whereas a lot of the submissions that we got could have used more specific words and fewer of them and fewer of them i was surprised at how many 150 word memoirs we'd got that could have been even better at 120 words or 110 words because the kernel of the story was there and it was powerful and it was wrapped in a little blanket of extra words to keep it warm. Yeah, we sent notes sometimes of, I really like this if it starts on the third sentence or I really like this if it stops at the last paragraph. Yeah. So the process that we went through is we each read all of them and uh, said whether for us it was a yes or a no. That whittled it down to about 150. And then we got together in person and each of us told the other one the ones they liked the very most. Like I had rated from one to five, you had rated from one to 10. Right. And we took everything that was an eight or above for you and everything that was a five or a five plus for me, because even the five scale wasn't long enough, you know. Because Allison's five point scale is actually six. (laughs) And we pulled all the ones that we both liked. And then we looked through the list of everything else that we individually had liked and said, okay, is there anything that the other person didn't like that I want to fight for? And we each picked, I think, three or four more that were like, let's try to sell the other person on this one. And that was really powerful. And I think that if you're in a situation where more than one person is choosing for a magazine or a journal or publication or whatever, I think it's really good to have some pieces that start out with at least one person really hating them. 
You know, I mean, not because they're poorly written, but because it hits them in a place that is deeply uncomfortable or the subject matter like makes them feel all squicky, you know, and, and I think that's I think that's a really strong thing to keep in mind is ditch the pieces that you feel indifferent about. Like every now and then you and I read a piece and we wrote meh, meh, meh. I said meh. And those pieces, I mean, I can let them go. I don't remember them as strongly. But the pieces that I was like, oh, I really dislike this piece, even though it's so well written. I just don't get it, you know? And some of those were pieces that you were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then you sold me on it and vice versa. And there are some that even though I first read weeks ago, I'm going to assume that this one's going to be on the broadcast, but a bird on a wire in Afghanistan. That's yeah. an image. I will always have that image in my head. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of like other images. Oh, there was a beautiful piece about eating peaches and having to lean over to not get the juice on your, on your shirt. And that one had the best last line, and I can't remember exactly what it was. And I, I do, I do. Oh, good. What is it? I want to take back the word delicious. Yes. I love that line. And so as you guys can hear, even pieces that are amazing don't always make it into the broadcast because there's a limited amount of time and space. Um, as I got further down the list to the stuff that we loved and the stuff that we liked, and I kept my little tick marks going, I had a new category that arose for reason for rejection, and it was no reason. You know, there's no oh, reason wow. to reject this. It's well-written. It tells an interesting story. It's compelling. It's just not ringing my bell the way other pieces are ringing my bell. It just didn't get picked for the PE test. Yeah. I want you on my team. Yeah. Because we only had so many slots. Gosh, how many times did they say that on the submissions episode? Yeah. How, we only had so many slots and we had more really good memoirs than we had slots for. And I got to tell you guys, if you got a rejection email from us with a, like a line or two of personal feedback, I know we had some students who submitted who I promised feedback to, and there were some pieces that were really just great. And I thought, oh, if you just tweaked it this one more way, we're not just saying it to be nice. We really, truly mean it. Um, it takes a lot of time to give feedback, not individual feedback, but 344 individual feedbacks takes a long time. And so anytime you get feedback in a rejection letter from anyone, they really mean it because it takes time that they don't have. Yeah. Allison worked hard on this. But it's been, it's been really incredible to get to read all of these beautiful pieces. I feel really privileged that so many of our listeners sent stuff in. And I feel really privileged to have gotten to read some of these memoirs myself in, in the episode you're about to hear. And I'm really excited by all of the voice actors that we've worked with as well to recorded other people's work. I've enjoyed it. I felt privileged to do it. Yeah. It's really an honor when, when you trust an editor with your words that you have worked hard on and that you have slaved on. It's really an honor to be on the receiving end of that. We take it pretty seriously. Yeah. I have to say there's one more thing on my list. Yes, Note to the world, your memoir does not have to be dark and wrenching. This is true. I wish we had gotten even more funny pieces. We got some very good funny pieces, and I would say less than 10 of our 344 pieces were funny. The next time you're trying to concentrate in yoga class and there's a bug in your ear, you should write about it. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and don't get me wrong, writing comedy is hard. It's its own special skill. Yeah. But you, 
if if you can write comedy and write it well, you have immediately narrowed down your competition. So all that said, we hope you enjoy listening to these memoirs as much as we enjoyed reading them. Let's start. Okay. Anne Bowden earned her MFA in creative writing at Goddard College and is writing a memoir of her active duty with the United States Marine Corps flying AH-1W Cobra attack helicopters. Her work has appeared in the Pitkin Review and Nell. She lives in England with her husband, two cats, one dog, and flock of chickens. Here's Anne's one-minute memoir, One Small Moment. I'm back in Afghanistan. Everything feels familiar, comfortable in the sameness of combat. I've wandered outside. My breath curls into misty tendrils as I exhale. The air anticipates morning. A small bird lands on razor wire, strung above a concrete barrier. His plumage is dusty gray. Perhaps he's a desert sparrow. His delicate talons fit between jagged metal edges that catch flesh. I sit, watching him from a pile of rubble two feet away. My Cobra helicopter sulks in my periphery, primed and alert. I've already spun her up once to check weapon systems and serviceability. She's armed to the teeth. No one is awake except night crew. Two pilots catnap. I'm waiting to be sent on a medevac escort or a troops in contact launch. The sun crests the horizon. Camp Dwyer is dirt, rocks, and danger. And one bird. Tracy Royce is a poet, writer, and doctoral candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her work includes The Fat Studies Reader from NYU Press, Modern Haiku, and Mothers of Invention, How Our Mothers Influenced Us as Feminist Academics and Activists from Demeter Press. Here she is reading What the Books Don't Tell You. After mom receives the diagnosis, you read the books, attend the lectures, learn everything you can about dementia. You discover that memory isn't the only casualty of the disease ravaging your mother's brain. Cognition, balance, even the ability to swallow will eventually decline. But no one warns you about the animals. But someday soon, You'll be unable to soothe mom when she tearfully insists that someone has snuck in and drowned several kittens in her sink. That she'll mourn the babies, also imaginary, whom she thinks have been abducted and dismembered by wolves. That when your frantic mother believes a tiger has killed your brother, your sister-in-law will refuse to put him on the phone to provide reassurance. That after three years of this, You will gaze at the reflection of your sunken eyes and sallow skin and wonder just what kind of creature you yourself have become. Anne McGrath's work has appeared in Antioch University's Lunch Ticket, Chapman University's Dirt Cakes, The Caterpillar Magazine, The 100 Voices Anthology, on National Public Radio, and on the Brevity Blog. She's pursuing an MFA in creative writing at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Here's Anne reading Before and After. Our 80s dishwasher was brown and bulky, unsightly. 
Once I laid eyes on the dream replacement washer, I couldn't get the sleek brushed steel image out of my head or heart. The manufacturer promised every story and laugh will be enjoyed while the dishwasher is running. I wanted in on that world where all our dishes would be white, where laughs and stories would be enjoyed with the handsome Italian in the ad. I deserve this, I told the salesman. And while it is beautiful to behold, the fully integrated water softening system isn't working. We are not laughing. Our dishes emerge heavily coated in ugly white residue. The repairman returns to spout confusing instructions for rinse-aid, salt additives, and specialized detergents. The handsome Italian never showed. I'm nostalgic for the washer we ripped out, the one that worked, the one whose only crime was being brown and bulky. Irvin Weathersby is a Brooklyn-based writer and professor from New Orleans. His work has appeared in literary journals and magazines, including Notable Black American Men Book Two, Killen's Review, The Atlantic, Ebony, and Esquire. Irvin Weathersby, reading his memoir, The First Time Since the Last Time. You turn left, and the patrol car turns after you. At the next red, you stare into the rearview mirror. We're being pulled over, you say when the lights flash. You are trembling softly and struggle to retrieve your ID from your sports coat. In an Irish or Australian or Afrikaans accent, the officer asks you to depress the brake pedal. I'm a professor, you offer weakly. Your colleague leans forward to say the same. She is white. You are not. I have to write you a ticket for your taillight, but you have a day to get it fixed, he says and turns away before backtracking. Oh, you're a professor. We need good professors. Or keep up the good work. Or something else he doesn't mean. It's the first time, since the last time, when you were pulled over and spent the night in jail. Today, you are free. Patrice Gopo is a 2017-2018 North Carolina Arts Council Literature Fellow. Her essay collection about race, immigration, and belonging is titled All the Colors We Will See, Reflections on Barriers, Brokenness, and Finding Our Way. It's out now at your favorite independent bookstore. This is Patrice reading A Doll Like Me. In my childhood, there are dolls, a doll with brunette hair and a plaid dress, a blonde doll with high heel shoes that I lose, a magic doll whose lipstick appears when I smear a sponge dipped in hot water across her pale face, and one doll, a brown baby with dark hair that I weave into braids, a doll my parents bought after they scoured one store and then another and another, hoping to find a match for their daughter. There are also dolls I make in school. A doll I paint off-white before I attach hair fashioned from yellow yarn. Or the doll I construct in art class, taking a preformed body made of cream-colored cloth and using scraps of fabric for her skirt and top. 
No one offers, and never once do I think to ask if I can make a doll that looks like me. MFC Feely lives in Tuxedo, New York. She attended UC Berkeley and NYU. Her work has appeared in the Tishman Review, Northern New England Review, Ghost Parachute, Parks and Points, among others. She was a 2016 Fellow at the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing, was nominated for Best Small Fictions, and has judged for Scholastic. MFC reads her one-minute memoir, Why I Love Cats. It's not just that they catch mice. It's that after I told the police officer, who said I'd find it easier since she was a woman, and my parents, who were broken in ways I couldn't fix, and the first nurse, who took notes, and the second nurse, who corrected them, and the doctor, who asked if he could take a look, and why not, everyone else had. But before I told the DA and the court, and every mean boy at school told everyone else. My kitten licked my tears and never made me tell a thing. Jamie Zverdzin teaches in the Master of Arts Science Writing Program at Johns Hopkins University. Her work has previously appeared in the Kenyan Review, Issues in Science and Technology, Creative Nonfiction, and Consequence. Here's Jamie reading, Walking by Dogs on a Marshallese Morning. At 4.30 a.m., I join a throng of Marshallese women walking down Madro Atoll's only road. Madro Lagoon is 10 meters to the left, the Pacific Ocean tend to the right. I make baby promise to defend me if a gang of dogs attacks. She says I should worry more about gangs of boys. I'm concerned. What? What boys? Baby grins. Kidding, she says. But I know her father beats her, and she once came to me in tears. Local custom says if she doesn't lose her virginity by 18, she'll have pain during sex all her life. I wondered who started that custom. Rounding the corner, I see a five-year-old girl defending herself against a whole pack of dogs. She violently chucks a rock. The pack runs. The roads clear as the sun suddenly blinds us, and I'm thinking of giving rocks to all the girls I teach. Evie Gold is a nonfiction humor essayist, a sushi connoisseur, and a wandering nomad. Here's Evie Gold's What You Don't Know, read by Iabel and Amikael. Dear barista, TSA agent, taxi driver, lady standing behind me at the grocery store, and everyone else that feels the need to inquire, please stop asking me if I'm pregnant. It's taken me years to get comfortable with my body, and you asking if my extra pounds or a baby growing inside me isn't only rude, it hurts my feelings. Every time I have to come up with a way to tell you that I'm just a little fat, 
wrenches at my self-esteem, and I stay awake at night replaying our conversation over and over again. But more painful than constantly being reminded that I could lose 20 pounds is the fact that my husband and I have been trying for four years and three months. It still hasn't happened. And you, dear stranger, don't need to remind me. BK Marcus is a homeschooling dad in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he also performs and coaches live storytelling. Here's BK Marcus reading The Guru. To coach me in my focus, a bug alighted in my ear. Hold still, it whispered. Ignore the tickle in your oracle. Focus on the in-breath. Now focus on the out-breath. Now again. I will hold as still as you, touching oh so lightly with my hairy little legs, wingtips barely brushing this threshold to your brain. Breathe in. Now breathe out. Be still. That growing warmth you feel around me means nothing. Just focus on the next breath. You will not even notice if I am still here or gone again. Off to test another aspiring yogi. Aaron Murphy's work has appeared or is forthcoming in journals including the Georgia Review, Memoir Magazine, The Normal School, Field, Southern Humanities Review, and North American Review. She is the editor of Creating Nonfiction, 20 Essays and Interviews with the Writers, and is a professor of English and Creative Writing at Penn State Altoona. Aaron reads, To the Man Who Stole Our Pregnant Dog. I hope she bit you, shredding the flesh of the hand that wooed her from my childhood yard. You probably sold her pups off the back of a rusty truck at a flea market, a handwritten sign missing an S or a T and basset hound. What I remember, her banana peel ears swept the ground like unhemmed drapes. We called her Blarney, and I'd already named the babies after other Irish castles from the set of pleather-bound Britannicas we bought by the month. Every evening for weeks I sat in the bath after the water turned cold, thinking my discomfort would bring her home. The walls shuddered with the last rumblings of my parents' marriage. I slid under to see how long I could go without air, the soapy surface a scrim over a body that was there, then not there. Georgie Hunt's writing has appeared in Prick of the Spindle, Nano Fiction, River Teeth's Beautiful Things, and Brevity. She was a finalist in Black Warrior Review's 11th Annual Nonfiction Contest and holds an MFA in Creative Nonfiction from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. 
This is Georgie Hunt reading Leanovers. The night after C and I sleep together, my parents come to visit. Mom, Dad, and I drive to Charleston, South Carolina for the weekend. I walk around that southern city with a sweet secret. Peaches are in season. In Charleston, they call them leanovers because of their juices that drip all over you when you take a bite. In the three days I am gone, C and his girlfriend get back together. Peach juices dribble and stain my dress. I want to take back the word delicious. Karen Iggy writes to savor the good and try to make sense of the rest. She lives in Massachusetts with her husband and dog. They spend as much time in Maine as possible. Here's Switching Seats by Karen Iggy, read by Hanana Zahir. Maybe I should switch seats with someone, my father says. I can see the kitchen door from here, and I keep thinking she's about to walk out. The day after my mother's sudden death, my family squeezes around my parents' picnic table. My husband grilled burgers... My brother and his wife came over, and we all trooped in and out from the kitchen to the side yard, carrying plates, napkins, mustard, and so on. I think I need to switch seats with someone, my father says again. I remember after my first husband died, sensing him about to walk into the living room or pop out of the bathroom. I start to explain to my father that it isn't because of where he's sitting, but then I realize he doesn't need to know yet how much she will be not quite there, anywhere, everywhere. I'll switch with you, Dad. Rhonda Zimlick's fiction and memoir has appeared in publications such as Crow Pie, Acorn Review, and Ink Stains. She enjoys living in the Pacific Northwest with her husband, twin daughters, and feisty black cats. She's just received her MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Here's Rhonda reading One Earnest Prayer. When I was 10, I killed my grandmother. For months, she lay drunk upon her couch the deathbed it would become. I brought her booze she could not fetch herself. I opened beers when her hands trembled, my own small hands struggling with the pull tabs. When I resisted or refused, she'd beg for me to bring it, with her slurred, sugary pleading, sometimes crying, sometimes angry barking that would chase me beneath the table. But it wasn't the booze that became her demise, it was my one earnest prayer I'd whispered the night before she departed, asking God to end her suffering. You couldn't convince me otherwise. Scott F. Parker's book, Away Home, Oregon Essays, is forthcoming this summer from Kelson Books. This is Scott F. Parker's Peace, 
Read by Brian Pastor. A lifetime of men punching holes in walls. All that stupid blood dripping on the floor. All those crumbling remnants. All the marks left behind. The low point comes when my boy is three months old and screaming, and I punch the hole in the wall that I swore I'd never punch. He is crying like he has accessed the very heart of pain or terror or fear, and nothing I try quiets him or comforts him, gives him whatever it is he needs. I am helpless, and I punch the wall as I have learned to punch walls, not people. And my boy is in another room from the wall I punch, but the hole is there now in the wall to remember by, and my boy is quiet now, asleep, and I am out here wishing him nothing but love and love and peace. American-born, French by marriage, Israeli by choice, Jennifer Lang writes mostly about her divided self. Her essays have appeared in Under the Sun, Assay, Ascent, The Coachella Review, Hippocampus, and Full Grown People. She's been nominated for Best American Essays and the Pushcart Prize and is writing her first memoir. Here's Jennifer reading Call to Prayer. At Studio Naim in the ancient port city of Jaffa, just south of Tel Aviv, I enroll my scion yoga mat, the color of the Mediterranean Sea, in the oversized room. Shabby chic, high ceiling, peeling paint. We sit tall, cross-legged. A warm autumnal breeze blows through floor-to-ceiling windows. The teacher tells us to close eyes, inhale-exhale, chant om. The cars honking outside and my droning dialogue inside fade. As dusk approaches, the deep, guttural sound of a muzin summons worshippers to prayer over the loudspeaker. I smile, so exotic. The Muslim recitation, a blur of indistinct noise, ends with clarity. La ilaha illa Allah. There is no God except the one God. I conjure Judaism's quiet, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal is one. Where I live 30 minutes north, I never hear the call to prayer. A serene reminder, we're all one, here, breathing, side by side. Here in Dubai, I hear the call to prayer myself several times a day. It's strange the different moments we take on from the different places we go, the different people we meet. Each of these tiny, one-minute memoirs has told us something beautiful. I hope you enjoy them. Now go write one. Thanks for joining us at the Brevity Podcast. Show notes and links to the people, places, and books we've discussed today are on the Brevity blog at www.brevity.wordpress.com. Find us on Twitter at BrevityMag. Our editor-in-chief is Dinty W. Moore. Our podcast editor is Catherine Rose. Technical support from Alpha Pomels and Ronald Anaha. Our theme music is by Mike Viseglia and Zach Sulam. The Brevity Podcast is produced by me, Allison K. Williams. Find me on Twitter at Gorilla Memoir. Like the rebel, not the ape. 
Thanks for listening. Ne <laughs> tak